taking your seats. I have a few announcements. If you have the, the bulletin uh, with you, just want to point out a couple things. One, uh, if you saw, there's uh, activity going on in the parking lot. That's related to the, um, our youth ministry, Epic Lumpia fundraiser. Uh, lunch has been solved for you. Okay? So they, are, uh, will be, or they will be serving lumpia plates, hot plates with rice and sauce. Uh, all of those proceeds uh, go towards our youth who are desiring to attend our summer camp, of which it's, it's quite pricey. And so uh, we'd love for you to, to help. Stay, fellowship, they've set up some tents out there after church, after the service, um, and eat some good food. Uh, also, uh, for if you've seen, uh, there was some painting done the last few days. Um, it looks awesome. And so, um, Angela, Ashley, uh, Erica, Marissa, uh, Amelie, Penny, and Lisa uh, labored, uh, used their talents, and painted a couple rooms if you haven't seen it. So just thank you. I know they've, those are some long hours. That, those look really good. I have some walls at my house. <laughs> Can I hire you? No, you all did, did great. Um, a fresh coat of paint, just you know, good energy. It's bright. Uh, so thank you uh, for your labors there. And lastly, by way of announcements, uh, our Vacation Bible School, the planning for that is in full effect. There's a meeting tonight. At 6.30, so essentially after evening service, uh, for those who have committed to serve or those maybe interested in serving, uh, we need your help. And so again, uh, 6.30 um, tonight uh, will be uh, kind of a follow-up meeting to all the planning for our Vacation Bible School. So with that, please pray with me and we'll begin. Oh, Lord, you are wonderful. You are awesome and worthy of our praise. You are faithful, kind, gentle, whatever the adjectives we can even come up with that help us, give us hope, give us peace certainly give us joy. All of that is wrapped up in you. And it is you, Lord, whom we want to know more of. It is you whom we want to hear from. And so I ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Glad that you're here. For those who are visiting, welcome. Our desire is to exalt and proclaim Christ. We want to make much of him. We want all of you, to fix your eyes upon him because he's beautiful. And when you fix your eyes on something beautiful, it's worthy of your attention. You, you can't take your eyes off of it because he's worthy. He's delightful. God himself, before the foundation of the world, God himself, the Father, delighted in the Son because he is worthy to be delighted in. There's nothing outside of Christ that will ever satisfy you completely. There's nothing outside of Christ that can ever meet your deepest need. You have come in here this morning, maybe struggling, maybe doubting, maybe with no hope, maybe with no purpose, no direction, lacking joy, 
And dear friend, I point you to him. Because joy is full in his presence and he will give your restless soul rest. Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity is set in our hearts and all that simply means is this, that embedded within you, hardwired, if you will, within you is an awareness that there's something more. There's something better than what I have here. Isaiah reminds us that we have been created for God's glory. We've been created as creatures who worship. The problem, though, Romans chapter 1, sinful man, although they knew God, wouldn't worship him as God. And there's a result of that. Darkened minds. A mind that pursues broken cisterns. A a mind that pursues fleeting Pleasure is a a mind that pursues clicks and likes and followers and instant gratification. And all that does is lead to anxiety, depression, false hope, a reliance upon the praise of man rather than man praising God. Rather than man worshiping God, giving glory to God in all that we do. And this has been from the beginning. Think Genesis Chapter 3, when sin entered the world at the core for Adam and Eve, it wasn't, it wasn't the fruit. It wasn't even necessarily the tree. In that moment, God wasn't enough. Wasn't enough for them. And there's a penalty for sin. Penalty is death. Penalty is that this life, for those who refuse to turn to the Lord Jesus, this life is all there is. So if this life is all there is, why not just live it up? Why not just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? And as I just mentioned, the refusal to give God the glory due his name, the refusal to worship the Lord and rather worship his creation has led to this darkened mind. And this darkened mind, just even speaking of our own culture, currently, Where on one end, life matters none. Abortion is celebrated, outright encouraged. And yet at the same time, those with life are completely obsessed with extending it. No need to look any further than the multi-billion dollar industries of plastic surgery and fitness centers, and medical supplements, all designed to extend life. Because if this is all you have, then why not? Oh, dear friends, death is coming. Death is coming for us all. But for those who have placed their faith in Christ, this life, this life that is a vapor, this is not all there is for you. And I'm not talking about extending this life. I'm talking about a new life. An eternal life. And so we continue our series this morning, Joy in Christ. And specifically, we'll be diving into, which is also the title of this morning's sermon, Joy of Christ's Resurrection. The Joy of Christ's Resurrection. And what I propose to you this morning is that the truth of Christ's resurrection is the very foundation for the believer's joy. And it's this truth that we must be steadfast and immovable. 
The resurrection of Jesus isn't just relegated to Easter Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus is a truth that transcends time. This is first here. This is of vital importance. And in the realm of theological triage, this is of first importance. Primary importance. And dear church, this is a truth that we need to fight for. Because we live in a world around us that we know no longer believes in truth. I referred to this a couple of weeks ago, and it's worth referring to again, at least a different slice of the state of theology in America. And it was made very clear that those who would call themselves Christians no longer believe the Bible to be true. Rather, majority believe the Bible to be much like any other sacred writing and that it, it offers helpful tips, helpful resources. It has helpful accounts of myths, but it's not literally true. Furthermore, 60%, basically two-thirds of surveyed Christians state that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. Personal opinion. It's what you think. What you think it is. Oh, dear church, the resurrection of Christ is true. The resurrection of Christ is fact. The resurrection of Christ happened. Christ lived a perfect life, died a sinless death. For those who would believe in him, he was buried, and three days later, rose from the grave. The the grave could not hold him. Christ lays down his life on his own, and he raises it back up. The resurrected Christ didn't resurrect back into a spirit. No, he has a body. And this resurrection is filled with truth that will provide for us the foundation for our joy. We have many points this morning. All of them will be brief. Six to be exact, and though they will be brief, all these truths we will find have their reality and foundation in the resurrection of Christ. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a great chapter of Paul's discourse on the doctrine of Christ's resurrection. Pastor Nick recently finished Preaching through 1 Corinthians had much to say. Many sermons on this chapter alone, 58 verses in total. So I commend those sermons to you, all of which are on our website. Provides a verse-by-verse exposition. This morning, however, we will survey this chapter and glean the realities that serve as our foundation for joy. We will see first that Christ's resurrection provides a surety Surety. Second, Christ's resurrection is the basis for our service. Third, Christ's resurrection is the basis for our salvation. Fourth, Christ's resurrection is the basis for our sanctification. Fifth, Christ's resurrection is the proof of his sovereignty. And sixth, Christ's resurrection provides for us the succession that we will follow. Read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first 
importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, and that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also dear church christ is indeed resurrected there is a surety here this event is fact it happened you can have the ultimate confidence even in this passage alone there's the objective evidence of him appearing to cephas then to the 12 then to 500 then james then all the apostles and last but not least to paul himself they saw him they saw him they were i Witnesses, you know, if you've ever played the telephone game where people get in line and the actual message is given to the first person in line and then each then person whispers to the next person's ear and then when it gets to the last person that gets the message, when they say it out loud, know it's meant to be a fun game, maybe even an icebreaker, the reality is the person at the end almost always gets the message wrong. Because somewhere along the line, someone embellished the message. Someone said something that was not heard, or someone heard something that was not said, and so on. So Christ's resurrection, hundreds of people saw this. There was no confusion. Absolute, objective truth happened right before their eyes. His death was prophesied in the New Testament. His rising was prophesied in the New Testament, and it happened. Surety, even currently, is used of a financial term. So we can even use it that way, meaning you can take this truth to the bank. Surety also means that someone took the responsibility for someone else. And in these verses, we find the gospel of Christ, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day, Jesus who is the way, truth, and life. Jesus who is the rock where your spiritual house is built. And when the waves come and the, and the winds crash upon your spiritual house, you can be sure you're not going to fall. Christ will hold you fast. This gospel, Romans 1, it's the power unto salvation. And the reason that it has power is because Christ is risen. The resurrected Christ, when he appeared, it's not like this was automatic and it's easy thing to behold for his disciples. Matter of fact, they weren't sure at first. Luke 24 tells us that they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. Yes, there was doubt. And then the resurrected Christ showed them his scars. John chapter 20, when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And then what happened? The disciples rejoiced. There was joy when they saw Jesus. And they were startled and not sure and maybe doubting. And so what then Jesus gives them in verse 21 of John 20, peace, peace be to you. This is the same chapter that includes the account of Thomas who refused to believe and then he saw him. Refused to believe. Then Thomas saw him touched him, and his response was a sure response, my Lord 
my Lord and my God. So you can be sure, dear Christian, this surety in his resurrection, it leads to peace. It leads to joy. Secondly, Christ's resurrection is the basis for our service. Like I mentioned, we will survey this chapter. So read the first part of verse 14. It says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. If Christ hadn't risen from the dead, simply put, there would be no gospel. There would be nothing to preach. There would be nothing to herald. There would be nothing to proclaim. Whatever would be said, would be said in vain. In other words, vain meaning it would be empty. It would be of no value. This word is also even used of vessels that, have, that are empty. There's nothing in them. There'd be no life to speak of. There'd be, no, there'd be no hope to speak of. There would only be man's works and great ideas to behold and something you have to attain, something you can fix. And sounds like what many in mainstream Christianity are preaching today. Because they're certainly not preaching about Christ. And this is what every false religion preaches as well. Why? Because those so-called religious leaders are still dead. There's been no resurrection. And so this vain message is what the religious leaders, even at the time when Paul wrote this, this is what they were preaching. Because they didn't believe in Jesus. Matter of fact, they hated him so much that they killed him. And this vain message of theirs, Jesus himself called out, referred to them as empty, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You know, what's also implied here is something that is practical for all of us, not just those who preach the word, but this is indicative of all of us who serve. In our service to the Lord, Psalm 100, verse 2, we are to serve the Lord with gladness, and we don't serve him insofar as he needs something from us. Acts 17 makes that clear. No, the aseity of God is such he's fully content, he is He is fully sufficient all within himself. So the fact that he allows us to serve is a privilege. Serving the Lord is the very heart of Christ. Because he came not to be served, but to serve. And we can become more and more like Christ as we faithfully serve in the ways you serve this local body. If done for him, and him alone will not be in vain. So we ask why? Why will our service to the Lord not be in vain? Because when you serve with the strength that he has supplied, 1 Peter 4, verse 11, God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. Serving the Lord will lead to gladness. Serving the Lord, though you may be weary, leads to joy. This is why we are charged, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart in serving. Don't lose heart in doing good. So there's a surety, foundation for our service. Third, Christ's resurrection is the basis. It's the foundation for our salvation. Back to verse 14, the latter part of that verse says this, your faith also is vain. If Christ hadn't been raised, we would be hopeless. Hopeless. We would be purposeless. We would be directionless. 
We would have no joy. We would still be enslaved to our sin. Verse 17, further in this chapter, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. We would place our faith onto things that will ultimately fail us, like the government, some man-made institution, our own works or accomplishments, or the next great fad, or the next New York Times bestseller that touts the new ways to live, eat better, lose more weight, get rich quick. Oh, we'd be like we're on a treadmill, going nowhere fast. And aren't you glad, dear Christian, that your faith, the certainty of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen is based upon Christ and his work because we can count on him. You know, if you think about, I rarely speak in absolutes, but if you think about every relationship you've ever had in this life, the closest, most intimate of relationships you've ever had in this life, And you ask yourself, have you ever been let down by them? Have you ever been disappointed? Have you ever disappointed them? Have you let them down? And this by no means to minimize the pain and the hurt that comes with counting on someone. And then they let you down or they disappoint you or they hurt you. This happens because we are not God. We're finite beings, we're sinful, we're selfish, and the Lord many times uses these instances to teach us, to grow. Moreover, to point us to the one who will never let us down. To the one who always keeps his promises, to the one who's always faithful, to the one who will do exactly what he says. To the one who keeps his word, to the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, life without Christ, it's no life at all. It's no life at all. Christ is the only one who can save you from the judgment to come. Christ is the only one who can save you from the wrath to come. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This faith is not in vain. Some of you here have yet to give your life to Christ. Some of you here have yet to put your faith In Christ, whatever it is you are putting your faith in, if it's not Christ, then it's here one day, it's gone the next. You know, I may not know you deeply, but here's what I do know because God's word tells me is that you have an inherent, deep longing within your heart to be satisfied. Deep. It's inherent. And that satisfaction, dear church, can only be fulfilled in Christ. So you come to him that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, what, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And there is in every one of us a longing that our lives be well spent, that our lives actually count for something, that our lives are actually significant and useful That we don't come to the end of our days and say it was all in vain. It was empty. It was pointless. It was useless. My life was insignificant. Much to be pitied. Oh, you can have hope. Not as the world hopes. Because the world hopes in a way where it's wishing. I wish something would happen. I hope something would happen. No, biblical hope is a certainty 
And the reason it's a certainty is because Christ has risen. Romans 6, 9 tells us, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. There is no final good news if our treasure, there's, there's no final good news if the pearl of great price is dead. You know, even if our sins could be paid for, even if righteousness provided and applied to us, even if heaven was secured for us, but Jesus was still dead, there would be no salvation in the end. You know, at the very center of Christ's resurrection is not what he saves us from. It's whom he saves us to. It's himself. Once his enemy, now seated as, at his table. Jesus, thank you. First Peter chapter 1, turn there. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Fast forward a few verses. Verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. In salvation there is joy and it is inexpressible. And though our sin and this world can grind us down, we can cry out to him who is alive. We can even join in with David and ask, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Fourth, Christ's resurrection is the basis for our sanctification. In other words, because Christ has risen, we can be confident that we will grow to become more and more like him. We will become more and more separate from this world. We will become more and more and how he thinks, how he lives, looking forward ahead to when we see him, we shall be like him. Back to our text in 1 Corinthians 15, reading in verse 20, says this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. The term firstfruits there, it's an agrarian term. More common certainly in this time that it was written because that was the economy. First fruit offering steeped in the Old Testament. We can refer back to Leviticus Chapter 23, where people would bring a sheaf of grain to the priest. And no grain, no other grain was to be harvested until that first sheaf of grain, the first fruit, was brought. The first fruit, the best of the crop. It was to represent the rest of the crop to be harvested. And ultimately, this found its 
meaning and fulfillment in Jesus. That Jesus' resurrection has now paved the way for believers in him. That those who are united to him in his death will also be resurrected. You know, there is, however, a sense where Christians have already been resurrected. Spiritually resurrected. Resurrection is not a future event only for, for believers. Those who believe in Christ have already been raised to life with him. Paul writes this in Colossians 3.1. I'll read it for you. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Christians are people who have already been raised with Christ. And Christ, as it states in John 11, that great passage with regard to Lazarus and him being raised from the dead, Christ, in one of his seven great I am statements, says of himself, I am the resurrection and the life. Because life is found in him alone. Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So as we fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we ultimately know it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is the resurrection and the life. And because he has resurrected, we have now received the promise of the Holy Spirit who will convict us of sin, who will point us to Christ. The Holy Spirit who actively intercedes for us when we don't know what to say. Christ also actively intercedes for us when we don't know what to say. Christ is the first fruits. He's made this life a reality And we know it's not easy because we still have sin. Our passions are at war within us still, but if we confess our sins to the one who is faithful and just, he will forgive us. You know, when life's trials hit us and hit us hard, we have his promise that no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. What a promise. And you can endure it supernaturally because Christ is alive. And because of that reality, you can consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. You don't walk this life alone. The resurrected Christ promises us, I will be with you always. In Christ, you have everything you need for life and godliness, you see how impossible this life is on your own. And unfortunately, we've romanticized the idea that impossible actually means possible. You know, through movies and media, we've been made to think that. Impossible actually means possible. Think of the Mission Impossible movies. Somehow the impossible missions are always possible. Without Christ, it is impossible. Possible, unfeasible, out of the question, not able to occur to live for Christ. This is God's will for you, Christian, your sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became 
to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. Fifth, Christ's resurrection is the proof of his sovereignty. Back to our text, chapter 15, starting in verse 24. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Christ is king, dear church. He's the ruler. He is preeminent. Christ is in control. All things point to Christ. All things find their purpose in Christ. All things find their direction in Christ. Christ reigns. And here Paul goes to the ultimate price that anyone can pay in this life. Death. Because if this is all there is to it, then one's life is the greatest possession one has. But as was stated earlier, because of sin, the penalty is death. And therefore, that is a reality for all of us. But for those in Christ, that reality now, the sting of it, if you will, has been removed. The enemy of death has been defeated. And while Christ's death put to death, death, it was Christ's resurrection that proves his power over it. Sovereign over it. John chapter 10 Verse 17 says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it back. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back. This commandment I received from my Father. Christ defeated our greatest enemy in this life. And therefore, we can have confidence now to approach his throne because he's the great high priest who knows. He can give you grace to help in time of need. Christ, who's reigning as we speak, is sovereignly orchestrating the events of your life. And it's going to be a beautiful masterpiece that's going to give him glory. And through the tears and through all the difficulties, though he gives, though he takes away, You can say it is well with my soul. It is well because nothing is falling apart. Christ is the one who is holding all things together. Christ is sovereign. Sixth and last, Christ's resurrection will provide for us the succession to follow. Oh, dear Christian, not only have you already been resurrected spiritually, when Christ returns you will be resurrected bodily. Christ triumphed over sin and death by being physically resurrected so that all who trust in him are raised to new life in this world and to everlasting life in the world to come. Verses 35 to 57 in 1 Corinthians 15 give the full context of this. However, for this morning, please read with me verse 42. This comes after Paul Ask the rhetorical question, which he often does. How are the dead raised? In verse 35, what kind of body do they come? Verse 42, so also, 
is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. All throughout scripture, we read of the widow's son in the days of Elijah, 1 Kings, Lazarus, Eutychus, Acts 20, and among others, each of these were resuscitated from death. But none of them were resurrected. Each of them was raised in the same body they died in, and then they eventually died again. Resurrection isn't just living again. It's living again in a new body. The new body is based on our old body, but is perfectly suited for life in eternity. You know, Jesus was not the first one brought back from the dead, but he was the first one resurrected. And when he was resurrected, he had a human body, but it wasn't the same. It's now glorified, no longer perishable, now imperishable. And scripture gives us some insight into what this might look like. And I know what some of you are thinking. Man, I can't wait to get rid of this. I can't wait to get a new body. I can't wait to maybe get muscles, six-pack abs. Oh, Lord, when you show up, please give me a body with lower uric acid so I no longer have inflammatory arthritis. (laughs) Maybe a little less gray hair in my glorified body. Maybe for some of you, a little bit more hair. I'm sure my wife would want to be maybe a little bit taller. She certainly doesn't need to be any prettier. She's got all that right now. I'm just, I'm just trying to score points. But our imagination can run wild. What will this resurrected body be like? Turn back to John chapter 20. Because as we look to Christ, we're given insight into the succession of this. John chapter 20. Verse 20, Christ showed them both his hands and his side. Further in the chapter, verse 27, well-known passage regarding Thomas, and Christ told him, place your finger here. See my hands and take your hands and put it into my side. And then Thomas believed this was a physical body. It wasn't ghostly in nature. It wasn't some emanating spirit. You could touch him. But this body's different. This body is glorified now, no longer limited to the laws of physics, no longer limited to the laws of gravity. So how do we know that? Back in John chapter 20, verse 19, says there, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And said to them, peace be with you. Verse 26, here it is again. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. So this glorified body moves about differently. (laughs) Moves about differently. Apparently it can go through walls. Now before, you have visions of Nightcrawler or the flash, I think we need to pump the brakes a little bit. Because our resurrected bodies aren't mutated or have some superpowers, but I believe this shows us that these bodies, though it will be you, will be different. 
it will be fitted for eternity. Because this glorified body, like Christ's glorified body, will never die. And this gives us immeasurable joy. Why? Because here's what that means. That this glorified body will never die. It means no more sin. It means no more sickness. It means no more pain. It means only satisfaction. It means only fulfillment. It means joy for eternity. And again, when we see him, we shall be like him. Like him! Of course, that doesn't mean we will be God like him. No. What it means is now we can love perfectly. Faith no longer required. We can serve him freely. We can pursue him with no more distractions. We can worship him purely. And we can fellowship with him without pause. Oh, this body, by the way, this, resur- this resurrected body, uh, it still eats. <laughs> Hallelujah. I love food. Luke 24 tells us there that we know this because Jesus' resurrected body ate some broiled fish. But you know, of the many fascinating details we're given about Christ's resurrected body, the most fascinating is regarding his scars. Because even in his glorified body, those scars are still there. You'd think a glorified body would be free from these things. It'd be free from these scars. So why did Jesus still have the scars? One reason, so that the disciples would know it was really him. Christ said, see my hands, see my feet, touch me. You know, if Luke and John didn't tell us about the scars, then I think it would be naturally very easy for us to assume that a glorified, resurrected body wouldn't have any. These were written, John said, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the scars are there to tell us, oh, he knows life. He knows pain. He knows affliction. That he added humanity to himself. He was made like us in every respect so that he could suffer with us. He could suffer for us. You know, Christ doesn't just get you. Oh, he knows you. He knows who you are. His scars show God's love and his love for us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, there's a beautiful hymn that depicts this. The hymn, the Lord of love, says, crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and his side, rich wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. Regarding his scars, they show us, finally, that those scars healed. They healed. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. He makes everything right. The scars healed. He's victorious. You may have scars this morning. And those scars could run deep. 
And if God so wills, your scars may never heal in this life. But what a blessed hope that they will be healed in the life to come. Revelation 21, verse 4, because he will wipe away every tear. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning. There will be no more crying. But before that time comes, dear church, his grace will be sufficient for you. Christ will keep you as you pursue him, as you desire obedience and holiness and righteousness. You will remain in his love and his joy will be in you and your joy may be made full. So as we close our time this morning, I have a concluding point. And to keep with our alliteration, our concluding point, the summary, and this is found at the very end of chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Paul normally sticks his therefores towards the middle of his writings, like Ephesians. First three chapters, doctrine. Last three chapters, practical application. And hinges there is his therefore. Romans, first 11 chapters, doctrine. Therefore, chapter 12, verse 1, through the rest of Romans. Here, interesting, 1 Corinthians 15, 57 verses of the doctrine of the resurrection. One verse practical application must be important so what's the application for us as we conclude it says to be steadfast meaning you're fixed meaning you're firm being steadfast means that when it comes to this truth you will not be shaken you are immovable meaning you are not going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine by persuasive arguments and you know the truth about christ You know the truth about you and always abounding in the work of the Lord is evidence that you're truly his. That you have been truly spiritually resurrected and that one day bodily resurrected as well. The proof of this new life is that you are literally all the time serving the Lord. Abounding means overflowing. It is overwhelmingly who you are serving the Lord. It means there's no confusion about your priorities. This means it's clear what you are all about, or better, who you are about. Busy yourselves for the Lord, dear church. You know, may we not be those who pray and give and serve and suffer as little as we can. There's no one better than Christ. There's no one worth more pursuing than Christ. And there's no one worth serving more than Christ. And Paul didn't write this. for pure knowledge's sake, no, this was written so that you would take action. That you would have proper motivation and that motivation is who Christ is, what he has done, and what he continues to do. You know, there's so many things we pursue that in the end are just trivial. You know, I'm starting to stack up years (laughs) in my Air Force career. I'm at the point now where Many of those that I've served with earlier in my career, they're starting to retire now. You know, one example in particular sticks out. 
vividly in my mind where a fellow officer who was in charge of the personnel office shared with me a story of a retiring senior officer. Close to 30 years of service, many accolades, many medals, many deployments, many citations. In one of the final stops, when someone retires, is that they have to stop by the personnel office, turn in their active duty ID card, and in place of that, they receive their retirement ID card. So the story goes where this individual gets to the desk, turns in his ID card, the personnelist takes it, tosses it in the pile of other active duty ID cards, grabs from a stack of retired ID cards, prints it, gives it to the retiring senior officer. Senior officer who is used to the room standing at attention for him and, and everyone kind of be, you know, walking on eggshells around him says this. So that's it. Personnelist, not really knowing anything other than what they're commanded to do, says, that's it. Thank you for your service. Oh, dear Christian, when you serve the Lord, when you are pursuing the Lord, when you are busy for the Lord, when you desire to make much of the Lord, none of this will ever be in vain. In the end, on that day, when you see him face to face, he will say to you, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. That is our hope. Christ's resurrection. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there is much joy in your resurrection. There is surety in your resurrection because you have been raised. Our service is not in vain because you have been raised. Our faith is not in vain because you have been raised. We have the offer of salvation. Your resurrection is the very foundation of our sanctification and life in this world. And through your resurrection, dear Lord, you prove your sovereignty. And your resurrection will provide for us, Lord, the succession to follow. Also, I pray for our local body. May we be a people who are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.